Hey, yo, and here we go with a very special episode, interview episode of We Talk Comics. I am the Crown Prince of Charisma, Mo. I have with me, as always, the Chief Defender of the Faith. He is the King of the Casters, Mr. Brett Podcast. Trying to get on the line with us uh, is the man with no nickname, Chris Bestie. And on the line with us, far more important than Chris Bestie, is our special guest this evening. Uh, Please introduce yourself by telling everybody (laughs) who you are. And why you're awesome. Well, the reason I'm awesome is because instead of taking you off the hook by introducing myself, I make you have to try to say my last name. Okay. So I, you have to try to introduce me. <laughs> I got this. We are super happy to welcome Fabian Nicieza to We Talk Comics. Very well done. <laughs> <laughs> That well, I had Mo tried it. That wasn't. Oh no! I, I mean, I knew that if Mo like come on, well, and now he's heard heard me. But come on, Mo, do it. <laughs> Fabian Nicieza. Very good, Mo. Good job. All right, all right. There we go. And Chris is. Uh... No, I'm here now. All right. Oh God damn it! Oh, okay. <laughs> Chris, you're loud now too. We're all late. <laughs> you're late. You're late, and you're loud. Good combination. <laughs> If you'd Technical like to rip difficulties, into, my apologies. If you'd like to rip into Chris, uh, we're we're all for it. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, why don't you start off asking him about Chavo? What start off <laughs> asking about an obscure question? Let's start, let's open the show with you, Chris, what's doing what, something what, that I'm what, hoping will make Fabian what's the mad. Most I mean, no offense, mad, but thing that you could that you could ask Fabian. <laughs> I mean, well, we don't I really want, to want know you what mad. Chavo but. is now. I have no idea what Mo's talking about. Oh, of course he doesn't. The Chavo Guerrero comic that you were talking about. The the one I refuse to read? Is that the one you're talking about? Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Fabian. All right. Um, Chris had actually brought up a, a really good point. Um, you know, recently we lost Len Wein, and, uh, and we were wondering if you had any good stories about Len. No, I didn't. I, I knew I knew Len only briefly from meeting him at conventions or seeing him at the uh, Marvel offices maybe once or twice. Um, but but I, I didn't know him well at all uh, in in that capacity. Uh, just just a few panels, so I, I don't really have any any stories, any personal stories to tell. I just he's just a writer and an editor who I always respected growing up. Um, and, and once I got into the industry, I respected him tremendously because through the 80s, he was editing some of DC's best comics by far. Um, so, so he's just a guy who's, who's very, very talented in many ways. Um, and, and everyone who did know him very well spoke really, really highly of him as a good, decent man, which, quite frankly, is hard to come by in our industry. Well, that's, that's an interesting question, then, because I know you spent uh, a lot of time as an editor. What... What kind of makes a good editor then? Um, what makes a good editor is someone who is smart enough to hire the right people and then help them tell the stories they want to tell uh, on time, on schedule, and on budget. Um, getting, us, getting someone who's capable of doing all of those things is very, very hard to do. Um, I was not a good editor. I don't think, uh, there's aspects of being an editor that I thought I did well. And there's other aspects I didn't do well. Um, but, but I, I had very little patience for my creative people not being on time or on schedule, considering that, you know, at that time I was working a full-time job and writing five or six titles a month. 
So I was not about to hear any excuses from people who weren't producing their work the way they should have been. Yeah, it must have been really difficult because, I mean, how do you find all the time to write five or six books? Like what? Well, into... I, I had I had gotten special dispensation to have a 30 hour day and an eight day work week. So it worked out really well for me because no one else got that. So Marvel was nice enough to stretch the, the day and the week for me. Um, I worked seven days a week every day, every month for, you know, two, three, four years in a row nonstop so it you know the 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 burnout rate and the, the the qualitative level of the work is reflective of the fact that it was overworking um but you know it's it's what i it's at the time what i thought i should be doing um in hindsight uh 25 years later it's not what i should have been doing but at the time i thought it was yeah we we talked to chuck dixon a little while ago and and I think at the same around the same time he was writing a massive amount of books and and I and I think it's that same kind of story where you, where it's it's so easy you just keep taking it in and taking it in and and then you realize that it's you know it is too much. Yeah, but and Chuck was also a very prolific writer, but Chuck didn't have a full time job <laughs> required commuting into New York City from New Jersey. But anyway, other than that, yes, Chuck was very, very busy. Um, so, um, and and the irony is that I actually turned down a lot of work back then too. Um, there was a lot of things I got offered that, that I didn't that I didn't take because it, this, you know, it, it was too much. Um, but but it was also a tight window. We're looking at like three to four years of time. It's not like I did it. You know, Stan Lee was scripting or, or, or writing, you know, multiple six, seven, eight titles a month for 20 something years, plus plus being the office manager, the editor in chief and everything else. Even though it was a smaller company, it, it was still a pretty large output for a very small house to to, to handle. So I, I don't know how many people top top his his level of of having, you know, his level of workload for the amount of time he did it. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, his his output was staggering to think about it. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. In some cases, I mean, there are people who struggle to, to get one book out in a monthly basis. I, I can't imagine the volume that he did. Yeah, and, and what a lot of people, and, and I, we, I have these conversations a lot, and I'd say a good 90% of the people that I have the conversation with, especially when talking about Stan um, specifically, have really almost little, little comprehension of, of what the office responsibilities are too. You know, I mean, someone like Stan was not just scripting the titles or co-plotting them, or even if he was throwing one-liners off to Ditko or Kirby and they went off and did their, monster stories or then they went off and did their superhero stories stan still had a script them but the other side of the coin is that stan was the editor he was responsible for for making sure that every single book was properly being vetted through the system and and, and getting out on time it was newsstand distribution back then so if you missed your window you missed your month so you couldn't afford to do that because you lost the rack space the, you know, he was art director because he was responsible for every single cover. He supervised every single freelancer that was on staff. He supervised the bullpen. And then as the company grew through the 60s into the, into the early 70s, he was also like the head of promotions in a lot of ways, the head of sales in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it, 
people people look at it at the writing of what happens in between the pages of a comic and they never really understand or focus on everything that it takes to put those pages together into a comic and get them out of the office to the printer and from the printer to to the newsstand or the direct market rack you know what was your uh, your very first ever interaction with Stan Lee then? Uh, two weeks two weeks after I got a job at Marvel Comics, I got a job at Marvel in August of 1985 uh, as a man, as a, an assistant in the manufacturing department. But that was for um, Marvel Books, which at the time was uh, children's books, Fisher Price licensing deal that Marvel had, plus like Marvel press posters and things like that. It wasn't like trade paperbacks or hardcovers of comics because those weren't even being done really back then. Um, but two weeks after I got that job, I had approached uh, Jim Salakrup, who was the editor of Marvel Age magazine, and I had a little bit of newspaper writing background in, in high school and college, and I offered uh, you know, to try to write some Marvel Age articles as a way, I thought, um, of getting my foot in the door and starting to get to meet people in editorial. Um, because the truth is that the job I took at Marvel wasn't one that at that time was going to interact that much with editorial. It just wasn't. Um, so I wasn't going to have much as much access to comic book editors uh, as as I as I would have liked, and as I soon got thereafter. But but that initial job I took at Marvel wasn't going to expose me to them. So I figured writing for Marvel Age would get me a chance to just start making making some contacts. Um, and the first assignment Jim gave me um, was to interview Stanley for a cover story. I was like, holy crap. So two oh, weeks into wow. the job, I, call, I, I called Stan and I interviewed him. And it's a, it was the cover article for one of the Marvel Age issues. I don't even remember what issue it was, but it had the photo of Stan on the cover, the, the Marvel Age issue. Um, and I did the interview for Stan. So I got to, I got to talk to him two weeks into my job at Marvel. That's a that's a nice place to start. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty it was pretty intimidating, but but Stan Stan's pretty easy to talk to because because he, he you know especially when he's doing an interview he really does talk like like you expect him to talk. He talks in a very bombastic you know um, hyperbole filled fun way um, because he's putting on a show. So I'm interviewing a Stan that I expected. Um, I, I got to deal with Stan a lot and talk to him talk to him a lot after that over the course of years and you know he that's not how he is 24 hours a day um, but but it is how he is when he knows that that you know that there's an expectation of, of showmanship for him were he was he somebody you could talk to about story structure and that type of thing was he somebody who had that type of advice or what, what kind of you well know, yeah in, in general rather in general rather than, than in specific i mean it wasn't the kind of thing where you you ask him what what would what would you do with the human torch in this issue? Cause he doesn't want to think that way, but, but certainly he's someone that you could talk to, especially when my early tenure at Marvel was, you know, the eighties through the mid nineties, um, you know, Stan was younger. Um, so, so he, he's, he was still very, very, very much fresh on the ball and, and vibrant and on target for this kind of stuff. But I, I just worked with Stan a, a year ago on a, on non-comics related projects, uh, an animation project, um, and and he he was on the phone editing me and his edits were great so it's like you know there's some days where stands a little better than other days in terms of you know in terms of his his cognitive connections and stuff like that but you know he's in his mid 90s my mom is 96 i totally understand 
the realities, the physical realities that people in, 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 at that age are going through. Uh, so you're going to get some days that are better than other days, but the days that he, that he was on the ball, my gosh, he was just, you know, Stan could have been 45 or, and running the Marvel, you know, production department again, because he just sees something in a story or a line of dialogue. And, and it, the good thing about Stan, and that's, it's always been my experience, is that he doesn't just say no, that doesn't work. He always has an idea for how it could work differently or better. Um, and, and at the very least, even if he doesn't, doesn't have an idea for how it can work better, he has an, he, he tosses something back to you that lets you think about it in a way that you can come back with something better. Um, it, the, the worst kind of notes that any writer ever gets, and they'll tell you this is when someone just says no, but they don't say why, and they don't say, how about this instead, you know? Um, so, so from an editing standpoint, Stan's notes have always been, you know, really, really valuable. So, now, um, go ahead, Chris. Sorry, go ahead. No, you no I, I was changing the subject, so go ahead. Okay, I was just going to ask um, because early in your career, you worked, you were, you wrote for New Universe, but and I mean, you were working with, you know, John Byrne and Peter David and and uh, Mark Grunewald. I mean, that's a that's a pretty hefty group of people to be involved. Yeah, with we right were the four survivors. That. We were the four survivors. So uh, the, the four titles that were left after the initial cancellation, um, John was doing Star Brand and Mark and Mark was doing DP7 and Peter was doing Justice and I was doing uh, uh, So I mean, Peter was only a few years into his writing career back then, too. Don't forget. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I worked in the I worked in the office because by that time I was Marvel's advertising manager. So I was already developing. I already had a very close relationship with Peter because he was in direct sales and I was in promotion. So we had to work together on things all the time. Um, and I was already developing a good relationship with Mark Grunwald. Um, so it wasn't intimidating in that fashion for me at all. Um, it happened very fast. I got a monthly book faster than I probably should have, but it was great. It was a great training ground for me, a, a line of titles that no one had any expectations for at that point it gave me a chance to just cut my teeth and, and learn how to work the monthly process. Um, but, but I gotta be honest with you, it wasn't an intimidation thing in the least. I, I, I was never intimidated by, by my contemporaries or people that were just a little bit older than me, like John. Um, even though I grew up reading John's comics, I was already a teenager by the time John hit Marvel. Uh, I've always only, only been intimidated by the, the silver age or the golden age guys, you know, um, you know, so Stan or John Romita senior or, or, or Steve Ditko or Jack Kirby, those guys intimidate John Buscema. They intimidate me more than the guys I read in the seventies. And certainly the guys I, I worked with in the eighties were, you know, they, I, they were my coworkers, whether they were five, you know, five or 10 years older than me or not, they were still my coworkers. I'm getting the sense that you could see the writing on the wall for the new universe, which is big with this crowd, actually. Um, did, did you have the feeling that it wouldn't last out uh, too much longer? I, when you got on? I, no, it lasted longer than I ever thought it was going to. Um, we, we, we took over with issue 16, roughly. I took over six, issue 16 of Cyforce, even though I'd written two issues uh, of the book before that. Um, Shooter got fired right before 16 came out, I think. Um, and, and the titles were consolidated under Howard Mackey as the editor. Um, 
we we honestly thought we were only going to have a few more months after that but the sales of the titles were low by marvel standards of the time but they had stabilized they weren't they weren't lowering anymore so cyforce was selling 40 45,000 copies at that time which like i said is on the extreme low end for marvel's output circa 1987 uh, I think it would make it a top ten title today, <laughs> um, but 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 back but back then the sales were low, but they didn't want to kill the line outright because the company invested a tremendous amount of capital into that launch, um, and and they wanted to try to get some return on that investment, and the, the the four remaining titles were all selling solidly enough that they could they could keep going for a little while. Uh, none of us thought it was going to be forever, honestly, um, when we were told that 32 was going to be it because we were going to do other things. You know, it was no surprise. Um, I'm Marvel's advertising manager, so uh, I, I totally understood what was going on. And, and um, I'm looking at the numbers every single month and I'm seeing what's selling and what's not. And I'm seeing what's percolating in the editorial pipeline. Tom needed a chance to get his own stuff starting to percolate. Tom and Mark needed a chance to start putting their imprint on the publishing line. And you can't do that overnight. Jim Shooter gets fired on a Friday. You can't have eight new titles ready to go on Monday. You know what I mean? That takes months to, to get, to get the, the, the book started, to get creative teams put on them, to get enough books in the, in the can. So I knew that the stuff that was percolating was going to be what led to the cancellation of the last four titles. I just took that ride as the opportunity to learn and to prove to editors at the office that I could handle a monthly book. Is there anything, you know, like when you're writing and plotting, does it give you almost a sense of freedom just to, just to know that you can just write and, and, uh, and that it probably will be canceled or do you need to try to, you, do you want to try to finish that story? Um, no, no, I never wanted to try to finish the story because I, 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 I've always felt very much that I'm, I'm just a caretaker of these characters while I'm working on them. I don't have any illusions that, that I, I end a character's existence. Um, and even if I did have that illusion, I'd be an idiot because the character could come back in a year or six years or 60 years. It doesn't matter, you know? How many years did it take before Bucky came back? Um, so so, so I, I, re I really wrote the books. I re I've always written the books as these are the stories I want to tell of these characters at this time. And that's it. Someone else will tell stories afterwards and someone else told stories before that, you know? Now, that, that brings up an interesting point for me, because I have a huge attachment to Nomad. Um, I love your run with, with the whole lone wolf and cub thing. Um, and then you. years late, later, I got uh, sideswiped by Ed Brubaker when they just killed him off um, without any, any fanfare whatsoever. Um, do you take ownership in like did, did you feel like oh no this character i put something into no longer exists no. or did you just um i, I was ver i was reading Brubaker's captain america at the time um i was very very disappointed by how they did that um i, I don't think it was good storytelling i i don't think it was respectful to the character or the or the character's existence and history in Marvel Comics, 
not even counting disrespectful to whatever number of fans of a character there are. Um, I, I have no problem with killing characters off. I've done it plenty myself. Um, I, I don't, I have a problem if you do it cheaply and gratuitously as if to say this character doesn't count anymore because I want you to think my character is more important. That that's just, that that's just childish. Um, and that's fine. You know, it was, you know, it was no, you know, I didn't like it, but so what? I, I also didn't like how Mark Miller handled new warriors in civil war. I thought that, that was absolutely horrific. It was terrible. Um, but, but so what the book is put out, the book sells and you know, they're not my characters. I don't own them. If, if I own them, then that wouldn't have happened. So since it happened, clearly I don't own them. Therefore I don't worry about it that much. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. It, what do you, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say that it's, it's something that fans feel tend to feel a little more emotionally about than actual professional writers or, or artists do. Most writers and artists who work work for hire for Marvel or DC uh, are are equipped to be able to to you know put put that in a corner, kind of put it put it aside in a corner. And I use it for for wonderful fodder at conventions and 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 in panels and having fun and interviews and stuff like that. Um, that's how I that's how I get out any frustration or disappointment I have emotionally. Instead of letting it bother me, I turn it into a source of entertainment when when I'm out on the road. You know what I mean? Um, so so you know it, it was. I don't think it was very well done at all. I thought I thought it was creatively immature to do it that way. Um, and and but that's the choice they made. So in my opinion, they made a creatively immature choice. So what? You know, in their opinion, they didn't. And in the opinions of many readers, they were fine with it. And, and other readers didn't like it. And that's the way this stuff always is. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to please anybody or everybody, obviously. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I know that comic fans, you know, gr do grow attached and they, and they go uh, like too far. And I think, you know, in this era of social media, it's much easier to go too far now as well. Well, um, I think that too many creative people are making the mistake of trying to write stories for the reaction on social media. Um, and, and that's a, that's to me that's a that's a fool's fool's errand. Um, you, you don't you don't write a, you don't write a story or a moment or a bit in order to try to generate um, antagonism or 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 even even you know positive responses on social media. You know because you, that's not how you, that's not why you should be writing stories. That's not how you should be approaching an individual story or a character or anything like that. It should be what matters most to the story and to the character first and foremost, not what the reaction to it is going to be. Um, and, and, and this is, this is age talking because, you know, when I was 30 and working on all the X books, we did plenty of things knowing and saying, Oh, the fans are going to go nuts for this, or they're going to hate this, or they're going to love this. We did that all the time, and 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 we over overplayed the the cliffhanger game and the bombastic panel introduction game and all of that stuff. Um, but but you know I'm I'm 55 now, so I'm not 31 anymore. So <laughs> I, I've been doing it a very very long time, and I've been working outside of the comics comic book field for a very very long time. So so I kind of have a different perspective on it all. 
Well, now it's interesting because you talk about about you know controversy, and and I mean, to a certain degree, you've just been involved in in some because the Northrop Grumman uh, Marvel comic uh, just got pulled, and you wrote that. Um, what? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's now, different, though. That's a cause. That's a custom comic, um, mm-hmm. and it's not a for sale. It's not a for sale comic at the retail outlets. It's really meant as as a promotional piece that a corporation is going to try to use for whatever purposes they want to use it. In this particular case, to try to uh, to try to stimulate interest in in high school, but especially college students, in, in considering you know Northrop Grumman is a is a place of future employment. Um, and the way that they wanted to do that is by showcasing that Northrop Grumman is not just about making weapons. Uh, they make all, all kinds of other stuff. They work in the aerospace industry. They work, they work on hospital equipment and electronics equipment. So the goal with that was to show that it's a company that, that has, has unlimited avenues for you to explore your technological imagination. And it's not just about bombs and guns and all that stuff. So that was the mandate that they came to us with. That was the, the that was specifically what they wanted out of this. Um, that they didn't want, they didn't want the vehicle to have any weapons on it. The, the, you know, the, the vehicle we were coming up with, with the story wasn't going to have any guns on it, any missiles on it, any bombs on it. It's, a, it's like an exploratory research craft for, we're operating, uh, you know, a, a communications hive mind. That was the goal. Um, so, so the reaction was completely understandable, but also completely misplaced in terms of what the context and the content of the actual story was. Um, and, and, and the reaction didn't surprise me either. I was a little surprised by, by, you know, the company's response, but I wasn't surprised by the reaction of a small, very vocal crowd of people on social media. Um, I was just a little disappointed by the excessive reaction to that reaction on the part of, of Marvel. Um, so, so, you know, but uh, I mean, that, that, that's actually a case where you need to anticipate what people are going to say online. You need to anticipate how people will respond to something without having information, without having facts at their fingertips. They're going to respond on a completely emotional level. And, and, you know, Northrop Grumman is a company that elicits very strong emotional reactions in people. And that's understandable, too. So you need to be prepared for that. And, and I don't think that Marvel or, or Northrop Grumman were prepared for it. I think also the, the fact that uh, it was announced so shortly after the tragedy in Las Vegas also was one of the reasons why the knee-jerk reaction was so strong and so immediate as well. I don't, I don't know that I agree with that, to tell you the truth, because we're, we're very, very good at it as a society of, of, of being able to parse out our, our outrages of the week without worrying about whatever the outrage of the week last week was. Um, I don't, I don't know that too many people were complaining about Marvel doing a Northrop Grumman comment comic were that worried about the Las Vegas shooting, because I believe that the majority of those people probably had already forgotten about the Las Vegas shooting. Um, just like a majority of the people have completely forgotten about it now, a few months later, a couple months later, certainly the media has, right? Certainly our politicians have. Certainly they've done nothing. I don't think. I don't think that as a society anymore, we, we react based on what happened yesterday. We're too busy overreacting to what's happening today. Um, 
I, I don't think that that as I don't think human civilization collectively right now has the ability to put yesterday into context to today because it's all about the now. So from a story think, oh, oh, go ahead, Brett. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, do you think then it would have been better for them to actually release the book and and really show that you know you didn't intend anything like it to have anything to do with weapons or anything like that or do you think there would have been then that that same vocal minority would have just said oh well you changed the entire book and not, and now you're just pandering to, to I, I think that I think that they were they were put in a no-win situation um I I I think that um I, I could talk a lot about it, but it's not it's not worth it. Marvel Marvel doesn't want to talk about it. Northrop Grumman doesn't want to talk about it. Anyone who is whining has already found something new to whine about. So it's really it's all over water under the bridge. I mean, if I were a Marvel's advertising manager, I I would have handled the whole thing in a very different way. But it doesn't matter because I'm not, and it's the whole thing's already over. So onwards and upwards. All right, fair enough. Moe, you had a question? Yeah, I was just wondering, when you talk about uh, society and how quickly they react and forget about things, as a storyteller, if that's the attitude of, of society, how does that affect kind of, or does that affect your philosophy of writing? Um, no, not, not really. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the odd position that I haven't done much monthly writing of superhero comics in in a lot of the time through the advent of social media um i i my last monthly book was i think legion lost for dc which i quit after six issues um and that was 2000 and what 12 was it i guess i don't even remember at this point whenever new 52 was um so i i haven't had the um I haven't had that kind of a, a regular response to new material that I've put out. So I haven't had the opportunity to navigate that minefield. I'm going too soon since I got a new, a new project coming out with a digital publisher, which is actually a weekly, you know, load of a chapter, you know, once a week. So, you know, hopefully, I'll have the opportunity to have lots of people hate it online. That'll be fun. So, you know, that that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to, to seeing if I could, you know, just get, get a little, a little bile going. But at the end of the day, when I'm writing it, I'm never thinking about, I'm never thinking about the response as a writer. I'm never thinking about my audience's response. I'm thinking about what my characters are going to do or say in a story and how I, how I structure it and pace it so that I'm telling my story, you know, effectively and entertaining in an entertaining fashion. Um, it's really not about, Oh boy, you know, Johnny rocket 99 is really going to hate this bit. You know, I, I don't, I don't think like that. So then what is the most fun thing for you about writing? Nothing's fun about writing for me anymore. Um, I've been doing it for way too long. I, I'm, I'm being 100% honest. I've been doing it way too long. Um, I, I, any, I'm, I'm starting to enjoy working on Outrage, which is the digital comic I mentioned. Um, we just started a few weeks ago, so I'm, I'm only a couple chapters in right now. And, and it's, it's going to take me a little bit to, to feel 
good about it or comfortable about it. Um, it'll take me a few chapters. I, I'm sure that by the time I'm up to chapter six or seven or eight, um, I'm going to wish I can go back and redo chapters one through four because I'm going to feel I'm going to feel better about about the way I've, I'm working. I, I've been doing such I've been doing mostly non-comic work for so long that um, that sometimes it's hard to 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 um, to feel you got your finger on it, to feel that that you're getting it. You know what I mean? Um, and, and especially working in a very different format, which is you know which the webtoon format is. It's it's roughly five page chapters, but you're breaking your story down on a on a per panel basis because one panel equals one one phone screen or one iPad screen. So you got you're scrolling one panel at a time. So you really have to take that into account when you're when you're working on your story. So I'm so I'm my mind is so focused right now on on the format and structure of the storytelling requirements for the platform and introducing all new characters, all you know, supporting characters, what their voices are going to be like, what their interactions are going to be like, uh, that I can't even think about whether I like it yet, and I can't even think about whether you're going to like it yet. Um, so, so that you know, I'm, right now I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna worry about the first two things I mentioned because I think that's a hell of a lot more important. Uh, getting it right is a hell of a lot more important than worrying about whether I like it or whether you like it. Because if I get it right, then chances are pretty good that both you and I will like it. You know. Well, there's probably you know it, it's such a different style to write for online and then you know that that delivery system so i think that you know things have changed so much is it is it nice for you to be able to have the different delivery system and to be able to kind of explore new new avenues yeah i mean i've done i i did a, I, I did a digital comic for marvel with riley a couple of years ago um the, I, I did a digital comic project for a virtual world startup that I, I, I was a chief creative officer for for a few years, uh, you know, like from 2009 to 2012, 13. Um, and, and I was working on digital comic product there. You just, we just never got it out uh, on the platform, on the, on the virtual world site. Um, so I loved, I've loved the, the format from the very beginning. Uh, as odd as it sounds, this is, because this is a vertical scrolling um, uh, drop rather than a horizontal scrolling, uh, it changes the parameters of how you have to approach the job. Um, Riley's so well-versed, Riley Brown, the artist, is so well-versed on the horizontal scroll that even he has a learning curve now because we're doing this as a, as a vertical scroll. Um, so, so, you know, I, I like it. I like the format a lot because it's very different. It's very engaging. If you're doing it smartly, which Riley is really good at, you, you can come up with some tricks that almost simulate animation in a fun way. Um, you know, so, so, you know, like I said, it's going to take us a few chapters to really feel comfortable with the format um, and, 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 and also get a feel for what paces best um, with that, with that finger scroll. Um, it's so different than turning a page. Um, you got to get a feel for, are you pacing it too fast and forcing someone to have to move their finger too quickly on the panel? Are you pacing it too slow with too much dialogue in a single screen that slows the whole flow thing down? Uh, it, you know, it, it, they're all very, very interesting, um, 
problems or challenges as you were. Um, and, and yes, I do like it because I've written over a thousand or and edited over a thousand comic books, you know, regular format, regular structure, you know, doing that is not new to me. Doing that is not a, a, a challenging experience for me. Um, so, so, so doing, doing this digital comic is, and, and I do enjoy that. All right. Now, now, uh, you speak of challenging experiences, and, and one of the main reasons, you know, a big reason we wanted to talk to you, and I'm hoping you will uh, talk to us a bit about it, was uh, Valiant Comics and your experience there. I know you don't you like mean acclaimed comics. Yes, yes. You mean acclaimed comics. <laughs> yes. Because I wasn't at Valiant Comics. I was at acclaimed comics. <laughs> that, Me too. That, that's right, yes. Because, you know, we... we Mo and I, we decided to do something really crazy, and we went through and we read every single Valiant Acclaim comic, and then we decided to kind of, we were trying to go to put a podcast together where we spoke to a bunch of people who worked on it, and then kind of try to package it as a little bit of a, of a history. And so, you know, we're still working on that, but, and so, to you then, what was your time like besides Horrible? <laughs> Nah, well, I mean, it wasn't horrible, horrible. I mean, um, it, 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 was, um, it, it was a great learning experience. Uh, I worked with some really, really good people and made some really good friends. Um, I, I just, I was very frustrated at the time, and certainly in hindsight, that, that I, I stepped into a situation where through no one's fault but my own, I didn't do enough due, due diligence on on what the real status of the company was like, um, but both internally and externally in the marketplace, um, and just as importantly in in the corporate communications between the comics division and the parent company, the video game company. And I didn't do enough due diligence on what the parent company, what they were like, the, their, their, their executives, their, their status in their industry, you know, their financials. Um, if I had done better research before taking the job, um, I would probably have not taken the job, you know, um, and, and, and I was frustrated with myself very quickly into my tenure for not having done that because I, I rushed into one. I didn't rush into taking the job. Quite frankly, I was offered, I was basically, I was offered the job without the title or the pay like 10 months earlier. And I, and I rejected it because if I was going to do that job, I wanted to be editor in chief and I wanted to be paid like an editor in chief. So it took, eight, 10 months before they were able to get to the point where the, you know, financially they could work on, on, on Bob Layton, who was the editor in chief at that time, they could work on his contract and structure in a way that he could step down and, and still, still, still make a, a very, very salvageable amount of, of, of the contract he had. Um, so, so it's not like I rushed into it, but I didn't spend any time in the ensuing months between the original discussion and the, and the, and the eventual job offer to do enough homework. Um, I just wanted to be an editor in chief and I wanted a chance to put an imprint out and, and run an editorial department and run a, you know, run a production department. I just wanted to do all that. Um, and, and, and I, so I was mad at myself for it more than anything. 
But, uh, you know, the people who worked there were all really, really good people, and many of them are still friends to, to the day. I, I think we put out some good books. I think we put out some mediocre books, and I thought we think we put out some bad books. But guess what? That's every friggin' publishing company out there, you know? <laughs> I really enjoy Troublemakers. Yeah, we didn't have a better or worse batting average, you know, than anyone else, statistically speaking, you know. Um, we also, out of desperation, tried a lot of formats which were incredibly innovative for their time, but were not going to succeed because there wasn't a marketplace for them. Ironically enough, there was a marketplace for them just a few years later in terms of digest-sized books with the manga explosion and all of that stuff. Um, but, but, but I learned a tremendous amount. I mean, you got to realize I, I started there as editor in chief. I ended up as president and publisher. I went from having to remake an entire comics line and recreate all these characters at the request of the parent company to having them to negotiate vending contracts for our soda machines in the office. You know what I mean? So, wow. you know, I, I was, I was getting, I was getting a lot of interesting experience, you know, so I don't, I don't regret it. And, and, and I'm glad I did it. Um, but, but, but it never was the opportunity for me that I would have hoped it could have been. What was the first moment where you thought, uh-oh, I didn't know what I got myself into here? Um, within the first week. <laughs> within the first week. Wow. Not the first day. Not the first day, but within the first week. It, it, was, um, it, it was a very dysfunctional company. It had far less resources than I was used to, having worked at Marvel for 10 years. Um it had an employee base that had been really, really beaten up by the, the, the previous regime and beaten up by the years of infighting that had happened, uh, you know, between, between the shooter situation, the, the selling of the company to, to acclaim, the, the birthquake stuff. I, I, walked into, I walked into a minefield and the employees were really kind of tra- traumatized um, but 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 I saw that there were a lot of good smart people there too. So part of my job was to try to provide enthusiasm and hope and optimism and try to make it fun again um, because they used to have fun there at one point, but they hadn't for a while. Um, and I and I do believe I did all of that. I, I I do believe that that by the by the end of that first year we were a very very good working unit of people um, and everyone's mood had improved. Um, you know, so the second year was just the frustration of not not getting it to stick, not getting not seeing that our our, our work was paying off. Um, but that didn't necessarily affect each of us interpersonally in our relationships. It, it just it just made us realize that the odds of us surviving were not going to be very good. Like I said, we read it all and uh, we've managed to talk to a few people. Um, I, I think you guys I do I agree. I mean, my personal favorite book of that you know, the acclaimed comics was Ninjak. And, and I think to myself, I wonder, you know, the character, even though there's a Ninjak out there, it's not this Ninjak. Why isn't something done with it? Was there's potential of these characters still, there's so much left out to explore and there still is in this day and age. And, and the fact that it doesn't seem like it's going to happen is, I don't know. I, as a, again, as a reader and a fan, I, uh, I, uh, just feel like that's a shame. You'd have to ask Dinesh. It's not my concern anymore. <laughs> Remember what I told you about not worrying about it? Oh, that that's, right. that's right. That's absolutely Dude, fair. I, yeah. left, I, left, I left the acclaimed parent company on a Friday in Glencove, and it was in my rearview mirror, and that's where it stayed. I, I haven't worried about it 
one iota <laughs> in all that time. Um, Dinesh owns a company or owns a character. Let them do whatever they want with them. They could bring them back tomorrow if they felt like it. That's true. Uh, there is one that I uh, that I have wondered about. When we talked to Bob Layton, I kicked myself for not asking this. So I'll ask it for you. You were the editor-in-chief at the time. And, and that's a book that I thought is vastly underrated for the first 10 issues of a 12-issue uh, maxi-series, Dr. Tomorrow. And then on the 11th issue, something seemed a little off. In the 12th issue, uh, Bob Layton, after writing the first 11 issues, did not complete the, st- the series. What happened there? I, I don't remember the details. I just remember that nobody was happy with Bob's ending to the story. And we tried to get him to change and, and fix or find a, a way to make it better. We just, nobody liked it. Uh, I don't remember liking it. I know the editor didn't like it. The assistant editor didn't like it. No, the other editors read it to, to see if we were off or whatever. Nobody was happy with what he wanted to do to end the series. I, for the life of me, I don't remember what those details were. Um, and, and I just, I, I guess we couldn't come to an accommodation to make it work. Um, so, so, so he had to be replaced for that last issue. But I don't even remember who the editor of that title was, to tell you the truth. Um, well, uh, you know, I just Mike, don't. It's, it's Mike, Mike Marks, Marks was? or Mike Marks was the editor at the he, end, and Gomez had, uh, had, was the editor at the Gomez beginning. Gomez started, he wrote the la- yeah. Yeah, he, was the, he wrote the, the last I, issue. Gomez, yeah, Gomez. Did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I foisted, I foisted, uh, I foisted Bob on Jeff just to punish Jeff, so I don't, <laughs> I work with Jeff regularly now <laughs> at the company he owns. Um, so I, I just did that to punish Jeff because I knew that that would make Jeff miserable. Um, so so um, I, I don't remember the details though. I really don't. There there was all there's always skirmishes. There's always creative differences. Sometimes you resolve and sometimes you don't. I, you know I, I I it doesn't. You know I saw Bob at a convention just a couple months ago and big hugs and how you doing and we're talking everything. You know if if you've been through the wars you usually don't you don't think of people as enemy combatants you just think of them as fellow soldiers you know um so i i don't remember the details of what happened there in the least i just remember that it it just wasn't working for anybody was it not working at the end or because like i say i thought it was fantastic the way that you'd had different artists who were playing you know homage to the different uh different eras you know and and just the the concept of it was a really strong book was it just do you know if it was just towards the end that the that the had the issues? I just don't think that we liked I don't think that people liked his ending I don't think like people liked the way yeah. he wanted to conclude the story I don't remember the details of it Gomez would I could have could ask him next week I'll, I'll see him on Tuesday <laughs> I could ask him but um he will remember because he has a he has a steel trap mind for this kind of crap um <laughs> but 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 I don't remember it offhand right now all right. Well, then he's in LA right now. He's in LA right now. I, I would text him while we were while we were talking, but he's in LA and on business, so he can't. It's six fifty four there now. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt him if he's in the middle of something. Hook him up with us. We'll we'll uh, we'll talk to him. Then. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so then, you know, one of the things that uh, when when you and I were on the panel in Edmonton, one of the things that I really enjoyed was just some of your stories about uh, about being in the industry. So, you know, maybe do you have some of those great stories about, you know, working no, with people and just, <laughs> no, no, I don't. No, I don't just, I don't just rattle off great stories <laughs> off the top of my head. I'm not, I'm not a rock on tour that way. I need to be prompted. I need, I need some kind of specific time frame or, well, or jumping off point how, to go with. How about, 
NFL Super Pro. Uh, that, that is such <laughs> an odd comic to me. I always figured there must be a story about how that was created. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's funny. I never, I, I, I was brought into NFL Super Pro because it wasn't, they weren't getting it to work right where anybody was happy about it. Um, so they asked me if I could do it because the NFL was getting frustrated and they wanted to try to put a big name on it. And at that point I was a, a big name for Marvel. So by putting me on it, it was going to appease the NFL a little bit. Cause if I can't get it to work, then clearly it's not Marvel's fault. That was the, the Marvel thinking, you know, cause that, so basically I, I get pushed out to the front of the pack, you know, to see if the wolves will eat me <laughs> or, or not. Um, because they'd already eaten the, the other people that they had tried on the book. Um, and, and I, I read all the material that they had done up to that point, And it had been a couple different people working on it. And Bob Budiansky was the editor because he was a special projects editor. And I said, okay, we got to, here's my suggestions. We clean this, simplify this, you know, take this out, keep this strong and, and, and focus on this. And that was it, you know? Um, and, and, and NFL said, okay. And I wrote the plot for the, the, the one shot special and NFL approved it and liked it. And they, Bob got Jose Delbo to draw it. And I, I think Jose's a really talented artist and storyteller, but he wasn't appropriate for that book because he had no idea what American football was. <laughs> um, but uh, but um, but I, I, that was it. And, I was, and then I scripted the pages, and that was going to be done. I did my bit for King and Country. My, my, my company asked me to do something, and I did it. You know, Tom DeFalco and, and Bob Budiansky and, and Mike Hobson had all asked me if I could do it, and I did it. No problem. And I was going to be done. And then they asked me to do the first four issues of the regular series. I was like, oh, come on, you know. And I did it, but I wasn't doing it because I had any particular love for the character or love for the concept. I did it because the company I worked for was asking me to do it. Um, and, and saying no would be a really, you know, stupid thing to do. Um, so, so that was it. And the book sold tremendously well. I'll remember that. Preferred that one shot special sold really well because I got a great royalty check on it. And the first two, three issues of the regular series sold really well too. I think it tanked after that, but I got out while again was good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, now I mean, you've talked about uh, now, and you've talked about people and and you know, like seeing Bob and and stuff like that, and just being able to, you know, hug it out kind of thing. Now. In the case of Jim Shooter, I know that some people absolutely dislike him immensely. Now, what are your feelings then on Jim Shooter I, now? I didn't have that kind of relationship with Shooter. The, the, a lot of the people who had issues with him were people who worked directly under him as editors or assistant editors over a, a prolonged period of time. Um, other uh, and some people in the sales department had issues with him. Some people in licensing departments had issues with him. I didn't engage with Jim in that way. Uh, as advertising manager, uh, I never had any problems with Jim at all. I would show him, I would show him roughs or comps of what I planned to do um, and and copy lines, and we would talk about it. He'd either have no opinion uh, or or offer suggestions. Um, for, for, for changing something, but you know, he didn't, I don't think he cared that much about promotion and publicity. Uh, he cared about the comics themselves. So he didn't micromanage promotion and publicity or try to technically he wasn't my boss at all. I worked for a completely different department. So he couldn't, he could put the kibosh on something I was doing, but he couldn't tell me I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? There's a difference. Um, 
so, so my relationship with him as a as advertising manager and a very young guy because I was only 26, 27 at the time was 100% cool. He is an incredibly smart man. He's incredibly insightful about story and character. Uh, he loves comic books. Um, and, and at times he's excellent at communicating his thoughts. Other times he's not. Um, he, he, the, the editors who had issues with him are 100% justifiable in feeling the way they felt. They worked with him in a way that I, that I didn't, nor did freelancers on the outside. Uh, so I can't say that someone's feelings are wrong or, or misleading or misguided because that's what those people are feeling. They have, they must have a reason why they're feeling that way. Um, you don't, you don't engender the level of, of antagonism that, that was festering in that editorial department when I got there in 85 until the point he left to the point where people are burning an effigy of you at a party. Okay. You, 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 you can't say that's all someone else's fault. You have to understand communications, a two way street. So you have to bear some burden of responsibility for some of that. Um, I don't know what percentages either side should bear because I wasn't in the room. Um, I do know that, that there were a tremendous amount of editors who felt incredibly, and I won't say the word timidly, they felt incredibly terrorized to be working there. Okay. Um, that, that kind of, that kind of feeling doesn't happen with the snap of a finger or the switch of a light, you know, that, that, that's a Chinese water torture. That's a drip, drip, drip. That, that just builds and builds and builds. So stuff was happening in those meetings behind closed doors through memos that, that was engendering that kind of feeling and reaction among many people in the editorial department. So I, I'm on the outside looking in at all of this, but I'll tell you right now that tension was palpable. It was noticeable. It was felt throughout the whole company. So when, when Jim left, it was an absolute breath of fresh air and, and, a, and, and the air being let out of the balloon, quite frankly, throughout the entire company, but especially in editorial. And because editorial drove the product and the product drove the company back then, that meant the entire company breathed a sigh of relief. And, and Tom and Mark were the absolute tonic that that department needed um, at, at that time and moving forward for the next few years, they were the absolute right people to be there uh, and, and changed, changed the dynamics of how the company was working internally into a much, a much better, much more proactive and much more positive uh, place to be. Yeah, it's, any, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Well, go I was just going to say, it seems like such a real shame that the, that Marvel was going through the, the financial problems that it was around that time, because there was so much. No, it wasn't. No, your your timings your timings totally off, man. Your, oh. the Marvel was having no financial problems in 1987 no, whatsoever. Well, no, I guess um, near, the, near the end of Tom DeFalco's. Uh, 
that's run, diff- guess, that's yeah. different. The, the, yeah. the changeover from Shooter to DeFalco and and the financial problems that Marvel was going through in the mid '90s don't even get me started because it's a complete fabrication. That the, the financial problems that Marvel was going through was solely due to the debt that was leveraged onto the company through the purchases of multiple other corporations that had absolutely nothing to do with Marvel Comics itself. Even even though sales had declined slightly from 92, 93 to 95, 96, those sales were still healthy enough by far to make for a very, very profitable company. If you took Marvel Comics out of the Marvel Comics or the Marvel Entertainment Group equation, Marvel Comics was an absurdly viably successful company, okay? But when you leverage debt for the purchase of Fleer and Skybox and Toy Biz and Heroes World Distributor and everything else and Panini and all the other companies that Perlman bought, all that leveraged debt was placed on Marvel, which is why they said Marvel was bankrupt because Marvel wasn't making enough money to make up for the leveraged debt on those purchases. Okay. That doesn't mean that Marvel comics wasn't making money. Um, so the, to me, the bankruptcy has always been a fallacy. Ron Perlman walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars in his pocket on a company he claimed was bankrupt, which is absolute bullshit. So that whole time period, I, that, that's when I had already left. I left Marvel. One of the reasons I left Marvel was because of the, the kind of, of, of ownership that Ron Perlman was running and the kind of people he was bringing to the table. Um, I, I found them to be reprehensible people who didn't give a shit about comic books, didn't understand comic books, didn't care about comic books. They only cared about money and the money they made. It didn't matter whether they made a Snickers bar, a Rolling Rock beer, a comic book, or if they made it through the claim of calling your company bankrupt and still being able to walk away with a tremendous amount of money as a result of the stock and as a result of, of the, the, the purchases of blah, blah, never mind. So, so yeah, let, let, let's go. Let, let, now ask me a question about Marvel's financial problems. <laughs> no, I, I, well, yeah, I, I, I actually just, no, Brent, I just wanted to ask I just want to know, question. Brett, okay. I just want to know. Yeah, me too. But I just want to know what he really thinks. Yeah, just, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, just quickly wondering, let me, you know, you want to know what I really think <laughs> to this day? I have never watched a single show that Ellen Barkin, an actress I always used to really like, I have not watched a single thing she's been on because she married Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman okay? Right. And even though they're divorced now and have been for a long time, she was still walking around with fur coats and jewels that were purchased with the money he stole from Marvel. That's how I feel. Did you read the Comic Wars book then? Uh, at all? Like Comic the... Wars? Yeah, it's it's titled "How Two Two Tycoons Battled Over the Marvel Comics Empire and Both Lost." No, I did not. I, no, yeah, I did not read it. No, I read it, and I was just wondering if uh, if you had any like insight as to how accurate it was or anything like that. But uh, no, I'm and guessing I guess you don't. The, you know, the, the financials were were played at a level way above my pay grade. You know, back then, so I really don't know. And, and you know, I I, I those books those books tend to gloss over the, the, the reality on the ground, the boots on the ground. It's, it's mm-hmm. generals and, you know, generals looking at things through a satellite. It's not, it's not soldiers, you know, humping, humping in the mud. And I was a soldier humping in the mud. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. You, uh, let's, let's try and get something a little more positive going if we can, yes. just because, because we, uh, 
you know, we, we asked about uh, Len Wein, and that's how we started. How about Mark Grunewald? Do you have some great stories from Mark? Because there's somebody we don't talk about enough on this show. Um, we, we should just Mark do a podcast was, uh, on him. Yeah, that's a, yeah. The problem is I can't talk about Mark in two minutes because it would be two hours. Um, Mark Mark was a guy that um, I couldn't stand for the first several months I worked at Marvel. I thought he, I thought he was a dick, and and he ended up becoming one of my best. He ended up becoming one of my best friends. Um, Mark was Mark was a really really intelligent, caring fun-loving guy who who hid it, hid it all beneath a veneer of dispassionate um, social awkwardness. Um, but, but once you were able to crack through that veneer, and not everyone could, but once you were able to crack through that veneer, he was a, a great, great friend and a great, a great mentor and a great, a great source of, um, of enjoyment in my life. And I, I don't mean that, you know, I mean, he was a great source of enjoyment in my life. I got to, I got to go on skiing trips with him to conventions, to, to, you know, to, to distributor meetings and which included, a, you know, a boat cruise and a, and a, and a key West and, and all these cool places. Uh, our, and my wife and, and I, and his, his fiance and, 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 and a couple other people went on trips together. Um, you know, so so he he was he was a, pr- a a very very strong enjoyable presence in my life for years. Um, his his death was uh, honestly it was a blow that a lot of us haven't even recovered from all these years later. It's still a hole in our hearts. It really is, and 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 I didn't even know him as well as some other people did. I wasn't I was incredibly close to him, and I wasn't even as close to him as some other people were. So I can only imagine how much harder it is for them. But but I got to be honest with you, he's been dead 22 years now, I think, 1996 he died. Um, he, he, there's not a single day since he passed away that's gone by that I haven't thought of him. Not wow. a single day. I, 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 can, I can open up my laptop and I can go on a website and see some, anything Marvel Comics related on, on a, you know, that appears on, on my feed and I think of him. I can look at a, a row of books in my office and, and I think of him, um, it, you know, it, it, it just, it, it, that's the kind of a, a, of a presence he was in, in our lives. Um, and he was good at his job too, which helped, uh, you know, so it, it, it's tough. I mean, the stories I have to tell are all are more personal anecdotal fun stories. Um, not, not many of them are comic book related in terms of the actual product itself. Um, you know, the, the, I wish that I could have been working there three, four years earlier because that was the height of his practical joke pulling that he used to do um, in the office. When I got there, he, he'd gotten through that phase a little bit. And, and the, because things weren't that good at the company in terms of editorial and how they were feeling, Mark wasn't doing as much of that stuff. Um, at that point, he did start picking it up again when, when, when he became executive editor, more party planning, things like that. But some of the practical jokes he pulled in the office were, were just like historically hilariously funny. Um, the, the, there's an infamous Michelle Marsh joke, which 
you have to see the video to really get it. And it's a long story, so I can't go into it. But she was a newscaster at, on CBS TV in New York, and they had a whole bunch of subway signs with her faces on it, her face on it, really big. And she was a very attractive woman, but a, an incredibly comic book-like jaw. Um, and, and Mark started stealing the subway signs from the from the subways. And by subway signs, I mean the ones that are inside the subway, so they appear on those runners up on the ceilings, right? Um, and he stole a, like 30 or more of them and plastered his office in them and then realized that they make, they fit perfectly over a human head. So he made Michelle Marsh masks for 30 of them, something about 30 of them, I think, and cut out eye holes and put rubber band strings on them and gave them out to people. And then he set up a camera in his office filming from the very top ceiling corner down and people started filing in to his office on camera one by one in Michelle Marsh masks um, to the point where the entire office was filled with people standing, staring straight at the camera. No one saying a word, no one do this eerie, strange <laughs> video. And the last, one of the last people to come in was actually shooter. who's was like awesome. six foot eight. So he really stood out wearing a Michelle Marsh mask. <laughs> and, and it's like this haunting video that is just a great practical joke that it took months and months to, to work its way through. Um, there was another one I heard that he pulled that him and Howard Mackey pulled on Kurt Busiek. Um, apparently Kurt had been pitching, trying to pitch an Iron Man inventory story. And they, it was a perfectly fine story that they just were never, they did, they were purposefully not giving them the chance to pitch. And it, it was a couple of weeks of this, you know, and when you're pitching stories, Mark is a very intimidating guy to pitch to because he gives you no reaction whatsoever. Uh, I, I, you know, I had some stories of my own of, for that, but Kurt's story is funnier. They, they, Howard was going to run the inventory story, so Howard set a specific time for Kurt to come in and pitch. Um, and they planned to have people interrupt them during the pitch session. <laughs> and... And Kurt had no idea that this was going to be happening, of course, because it's a practical joke. So Kurt would be trying to pitch, and someone would knock on the door real quick. The door was open. Knock on the door real quick. Say, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Mark, I need you to look at this. Right. And what Kurt didn't know is that there was a line of people out the door. <laughs> everybody having some kind of fake work that they needed Howard or Mark to look at while Kurt was trying to pitch the story. And apparently the line was like 10, 15 people deep. <laughs> and, and after, after about the eighth or ninth interruption, Kurt got really mad and like left the office all angry. And they were cracking up, crying, laughing, and they bought a story. The, the, and that, the, you know, the, the best part of the story is that they bought the story. It appeared in print. It, you know, it got it got turned into an issue. But, but those kinds of practical jokes were just were just great, great stuff that he used to do. Now, now, will you tell us the uh, the story about your you getting practical jokes? Yeah, I got a good one, sure. You heard it already, all right? I got, yes. I know, we were but Chris, Chris hasn't done it. It's awesome. It's fantastic. We were going skiing, uh, uh, Mark, Ralph Macchio, Glenn Herdling, who's an editor, and me. We're going to go skiing um, uh, to Vermont for a weekend. And I was losing my hair at a precipitous rate at that point. Um, 
I believe that Mark, Mark and I and Bob Harris had all started trying Rogaine at the same time. That's when Rogaine first came out. And it worked for Mark and Bob. Their hair loss really, really slowed down. And it just seemed to speed my hair loss up. <laughs> and a doctor said, yes, in a small percentage of people, it seems to have an adverse effect. But I'm like, oh, thank you. That, that, that must have been the, the, the part of the, the, the quick sound thing that they scroll at the end of every every pharmaceutical commercial where, where if you're not paying attention, you don't hear them say may cause painful rectal bleeding. And you go, wait a minute. What, what? It may cause what? Yeah. Um, Side effects. So anyway, include, we yeah. went, we went on the ski trip and I woke up the next morning and there was like hair all over my pillow and all over my bed. And I, I panicked cause I thought this, like all my hair, had, I didn't think they had shaved me. I thought all my hair had fallen out. So I went to the mirror and I'm looking and I can't tell any any super noticeable difference. And they all like, whoa, what's going on? Oh, man. Wow. You're losing a lot of hair, Fabe. I'm like, I know I'm losing hair, but it shouldn't be that much. That's crazy. So that was it. That was that was all right. No. Okay, fine. That the next day, though, I woke up and it was all over again. And then I really got like angry and nervous and scared and i see that i see i think it was glenn that broke it i think glenn was cracking up and that's when i realized wait a minute this isn't even my hair it's like there's there's hair there that's different color hair than mine is they're, you know and they're they're crying laughing so the combination it's a great practical joke to begin with but here's where it gets better they got hair from as many people in the office as they could, and they put it into a big Ziploc bag, okay? And that included, like, chest hair and pubic hair and everything. And people, were, people were ripping or cutting hair off of their bodies to put into this bag, right? And then, then they only had enough hair for one day, though. So the second day, it was a combination of whatever hair they could easily get off the bed because a bunch had fallen on the floor and stuff. And then they got hair from the shower drain <laughs> in the bathroom we were using and blue dry it. They blue dry it and put it into the bag. So that was the combination of hair that they dropped all over me on the second day. So oh. I don't know if that was Mark's practical joke or Glenn Herdling's, though. I don't remember to this day. I, I think Glenn did most of the work on that one. Um, but that was a pretty good one. I, I like that one. That was funny. Yeah, those guys were funny. <laughs> I mean, that it's, it's hilarious. Hell with you, Grunwald. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's impossible to top. They were good. Yeah, there was, and there's, there's a gajillion of them. I forget half of them. Elliot Brown and Howard Mackey could tell you stories blue in the face. They, they, they were some just phenomenal ones. They also have great stories. It was right before my time, leading into my time, uh, when they were putting out the Marvel Universe handbooks and and pulling these all nighters and all weekend things. And the three of them there, Mark and Howard and Elliot, would be there all weekend long at the offices working on these books and like walking around the offices in like their underwear and t-shirts. <laughs> There's no one there but them. <laughs> and just like, just stuff like that. Like they all slept in the office. It must have been disgusting. They're like, you know, that, they did that stuff all the time. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's so great. We so have now, to try and get those guys, Brett, and yes. find a way to talk to them, get those stories. Oh, no doubt. So, 
Kevin McGuire. Let's talk about Kevin McGuire. He's a friend of yours. Okay. And uh, I'd well, like to one, talk. Of, one of the things that I'm interested in is, uh, is um, you know, he's you know, on your Twitter. He was talking about going to see Justice League with you. And then you would commented about having as much fun as you did during Batman versus Superman. I'm intrigued by the fun that you had during Batman versus Superman. <laughs> well, we we were we were making so many childish um, <laughs> noises of frustration and disbelief and and astonishment that the people in front of us told us to shut up or leave, turn around and shut up or leave. Um, and they were people we actually went to the theater with. <laughs> so, so we were uh, we were we were not happy um, with the movie, and and we had a real hard time containing our our discontent. Um, but it wasn't just us because Erica Schultz and Andrea Mello were with us too, and they were also involved. But but Kevin and I are the ones who drew the ire. Um, you, Kevin and I also went to a DC screening of Dark Knight Returns. Um, no, wait, what was the third one? Dark Knight Rises? Right. Whatever yeah. the third Nolan movie was, Dark Knight Rises. Okay. We, we actually were, laughed out loud during that movie because we both thought it was so bad. And, and people in front of us were turning around and we had to hide our faces because we didn't want these people to know we were laughing at their movie. Um, <laughs> he and I don't always agree in the least on movies. There's lots, there's lots of times we just wholeheartedly disagree about whether we like something or the extent to which we liked or dislike something. Um, but, but, but we share, we share a commonality when it comes to our feelings on, on Zack Snyder's Superman movie and Batman versus Superman movie. So we go into this with great trepidation, hope, but trepidation. <laughs> uh, well, that's all right. I think uh, I think we probably yeah. I don't. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and dissect. I'm not going to dissect Batman versus Superman <laughs> no. later. Who gives a shit? No, I mean, no, nobody cares. No. I don't care. I, I mean, no. you know, I was done with it five minutes after I walked out of the theater. But but you know, Kevin and I have been seeing movies together for thirty years, and and you know, we'll, hopefully he's in Portland now, and I'm I, I'm still here in Jersey, so we don't get to see as many together as we used to, but we still try to catch a couple a year when we can. Well, well, you know what? That's that's good. I, I think we've taken plenty of your time here tonight, sir. Um, I mean, we I appreciate it because you didn't you even know. ask me a single question about Deadpool. Thank you. Well, no, we we really weren't going that, to. That, that's been um, well covered. Good. Yeah. Good. I, I mean, yeah. You, you said you wanted new questions. Who else has ever asked you about Doctor Tomorrow? I mean, who else? <laughs> nobody to tell you the truth, and there's a reason for that because nobody read it but the two of you guys. <laughs> that's, that's right. I, I love those first. Anyways, um, yeah, we have a we have a we talk comics uh, tradition here for the guests on the way out. Uh, it, it's a little segment, a little something we do where uh, we what we like to do is uh, something called plug your shit. I'm ready. I can plug my shit real easy. Plug your shit. My first new comic in a long long time uh is going to be coming out soon by soon that means i don't exactly know when because <laughs> um, <laughs> we're just started working on it the last few weeks um but it is called outrage uh it is by me and riley brown co-created by me and riley brown 
uh, who's worked uh, uh, on many Marvel and DC comics and has worked with me on Cable and Deadpool before. Um, the character uh, basically uh, can appear through your social media, and if you're being an ass, uh, outrage beats the crap out of you, and then nice. disappears. <laughs> so it's happening all over the country, and and outrage possibly could annoy the wrong people uh, through, through their actions. And that leads to a growing interest on the part of the FBI and the U S government to find out what the heck is going on. Um, so the first half of the book is, is who is outrage. And the second half of the book, which should be very interesting is why is outrage? Why are we acting like this on social media? Why are we venting uh, this kind of bile uh, the way we do. Um, so, so it's a, it, it's, it's a, it's a comedy adventure. I call it, uh, Deadpool meets Mr. Robot meets the office, uh, <laughs> because that's a pretty accurate combination of things there. Um, his humor is very, very different than Deadpool's. Um, I, the way I've been describing it to people, uh, Deadpool is the ultimate manifestation of your id and outrage is the ultimate manifestation of your super ego. Um, very, 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 very heightened degree of uh, anger and angst uh, that comes out of the character. Um, it is going to be appearing as a digital comic uh, exclusively uh, for the, at least a, it's almost a two-year window, I think, um, on a digital platform called Webtoon. They are one of the largest uh, digital comic companies on, on the planet. Um, you can download the app for free on your iPad or your uh, on your your pad or your phone, uh, Webtoon W E B T O O N. Um, it is free to download. The site contains hundreds and hundreds of comics, which are free to read. Outrage will be free to read. A new chapter will drop every week. It's a twenty-six chapter story. Um, so from whenever it comes out, which I don't know if it'll be late December or January yet. Um, you you want to make sure you have enough uh, chapters in the can before you, you drop the first one because it's going to come out every week after that. Um, and every chapter is roughly about five pages long. Um, and so when it comes out, uh, when it, when the official launch date uh, is announced, I'm going to, I'm going to hit social media with it as much as I possibly can. But, um, we're having a good time so far because it's a pretty interesting character. Um, th there's humor involved, but there, there's also an underlying story, which is a little more inquisitive and reflective of the questions we're all asking ourselves or should be asking ourselves every single day, which is, uh, was that a stupid thing for me to say online? <laughs> should I have said that or should I have reacted that way? Um, so so th this is, this is going to dig into a little bit of that psyche too. Well, uh, that's great. I'm glad on social media, by the way, you stood up to Gail Simone's bullying. Uh, that was yeah, she's a, she's a, she's such a troll, man. She's such a pain in the ass troll. What a jerk Gail Simone is. If only, if, if only, if only she weren't such a good writer. It's, it's because of how good a writer she is that she gets away with her jerky trollishness and her anti-cyclopean behavior. 
That bothers me. I'm not How even starting this whole stupid. <laughs> I'm not starting this fake feud again because it bores me. But but we all know it's forced blast. But that's besides the point. <laughs> that's all we need to say. We can end it with that. We all know it's forced blast. <laughs> but really, fake awesome. feuds are awesome. <laughs> and and yeah. I think we need we need more fake feuds in comics. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the real problem is when people can't tell the difference, and that's when it starts getting, you know, after a week of it, uh, there were too many people who couldn't tell the difference, because mm. the, the, the people who come in in the second, third, fourth, or fifth inning and act like they know what's happened in the game so far, they're the ones that you have to deal with, you know? Um, so it stops being fun when people when people jump on who don't know what's going on, uh, because they're the ones who act like idiots, and that was starting to happen, so I got bored. Yeah, yeah, that's a shame. Uh, well, you gave uh, me a laugh, though. That, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's... no, and it was it was a lot of entertainment for a lot of people for for you know for a few days. But but that's it. You know, that's enough. Let's move on to more important outrages, like outrage coming soon on webtoon. <laughs> Brilliant. Well All right, guys, let's wrap it up. All right. Well, Fabian Nicieza, Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. You, it was a lot of fun. Wish you all the best in uh, in all your future projects. Yes, and hopefully Thanks we can talk Just to you.